Welcome back. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the Divine Lantern. With the blessing of His Eminence Metropolitan Basilios, the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese presents a podcast to educate, empower, and enrich. My name's Jonathan, and I'm part of the Antiochian Christian Orthodox Youth, and I'm your host for this week's episode. We'll be joined today by Father John, who will focus on the Trisagion hymn and its importance in the continuation of our Divine Liturgy series. We'll also learn about the lives of the saints. We'll also celebrate the Sunday of Forgiveness as we journey towards Pascha and answer a question on the faith from one of you, our listeners. If you'd like to have your question answered, shoot an email through to tdl at antiochian.org.au. Enjoy today's podcast. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Today we're continuing the series on the Divine Liturgy. We're exploring an ancient and powerful prayer this time. There's an incredible vision of God. It was witnessed by the great prophet Isaiah. He was born about 800 years before Jesus. In it, Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord. He was on a throne. It was a divine throne that was lifted up high in a temple. He is surrounded by angels. These angels are the highest ranked seraphim. They are encircling him. They cover themselves from his glory. They're on fire with the love of God. In it, Isaiah speaks of the seraphim in his book. He writes that they proclaimed, and one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In the divine liturgy, We chant this hymn word for word during the consecration of the gifts. This will be covered in a later episode. However, today, this vision has also inspired another powerful prayer that we're going to discuss. It's been echoed throughout human history for thousands of years. It's a prayer for eternity in heaven. Just as Christ fulfilled all the prophecies, Jesus also fulfills this vision of Isaiah, so that we too can witness the Most High and Glorious God. Originally, it was simply holy, 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 but now it is holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal, have mercy on us. So what does it mean? Well, this is what we hear in the Divine Liturgy after the little entrance in the daily hymns. It's known as the Trisagion prayer. Tri is from the Greek word for three, and agion is holy. Sometimes we may say Trisagion, but it's pronounced Trisagion. It is sometimes alternated to celebrate the theophany of Christ or the cross, but it's always a chant of victory and holiness. Holy God is God the Father. He is the commander of creation. Holy Mighty is God the Son. He who bound the might of the devil and was mighty over Hades. It was he who gave us power to trample the devil in sin. Holy Immortal means the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, the immortal one who dwells in all places and fills all things. But this refrain is not just said once. Hieromonk Gregorius comments on the Divine Liturgy. He says, quote, Because of the threefold appellation, which means title, of holy, applies to each of the three persons of the one Godhead. Each one is holy and mighty and immortal. End quote. Holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal have mercy on us. Let's walk through what happens 
in the Divine Liturgy before and during the recital of this prayer. The Gospel book is brought from the altar and presented for the people to see. The clergy are standing in preparation to enter the altar, as we heard last week. We remember that God became man and left us his divine presence through the Gospel. It's beautifully described in last week's episode as a liturgical icon. Before the clergy enter with the Word of God, the priest will call us to an important job in order that we can pray the Trisagion truthfully. We must bow down and worship Christ the King and God. This isn't just a friendly suggestion. At this point we must prostrate and cross ourselves. In this way, we are blessing ourselves and asking God for His blessing that we can join in and chant with the angels as we pray the hymns of the day. We've just seen the Word of God, and now we have to get ready to hear His Word so that later we can taste and see. Now at this point, if you've attended a liturgy where there is a bishop serving, you'll see that this is when the bishop or the hierarch will enter. This is because historically this was the official beginning of the liturgy. The bishop historically may have entered the church with a procession of people and chanting. Sometimes he would be vested in his royal robes just before this. He would be adorned in a royal way but also as a shepherd to a flock. After the entry to the altar, the bishop would be followed by all the clergy and they would all take their places on the furthest point of the altar in the east. Nowadays, as mentioned again last week, the gospel is placed on the altar and the clergy take their places immediately. After the entry, we then hear the cry of the senior clergy, For you, O God, are holy, and to you we give glory. And it's in response to this the faithful pray the Trisagion hymn, while the priest or bishop reads a prayer quietly. In this quiet prayer, we can uncover a great magnificence that's hidden in plain sight. He reads, It is out of nothing that you brought the universe into being. This means from nothing he gave us everything. He continues, O God, you created male and female. This means from everything that humanity is set apart. We are not just receivers, but we are stewards of creation. We have a responsibility. The prayer continues, adorning them with every gift of your grace. This means that we, as stewards who are unworthy, we can't do this alone. We need his grace, his action in our lives. So from this, we begin to see that Trisagion is telling us of very fundamental values of God, that he loves us and he gives us his grace and he gave us everything from nothing. And that in order to pray this, the church is telling us that the Trisagion is intended to be the foundation of all prayer. It's the basis of all worship. We must begin our spiritual journey always with a thrice holy hymn. It must be based upon this and it must end with this. Without calling on the holiness of God, we cannot recognize the gifts of God to us. Without contemplating on His holiness, we can't ever be in His likeness, as He intended. The prayer that's read continues. You give wisdom and understanding to those who ask. You do not reject the sinner. Here we see that our Lord is merciful. This means that yes, He is the holy God. He is the King on the throne. He is honored by the highest powers. But He's our Father. He's Dad. This means that if we lack wisdom and understanding, we are promised that through the Trinity, we sinners are not rejected. This is why the Trisagion prayer does not simply end at holy mighty. Instead, we refrain, have mercy on us. Because our Lord does not simply ask of us worship, he also returns to us his mercy. The Trisagion is made up of this way. 
Holy God, Holy Mighty, Holy Immortal, three times. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and to the ages of ages. Amen. Holy Immortal, have mercy on us. Now, if a bishop is present there, we will say it more than that. We'll say it five times. We'll harmonize it with other responses. So why is it that we sometimes do three, sometimes do five, sometimes more? Well, Father Lawrence Farley writes in that the original Trisagion was chanted not just three or four times, but probably closer to 20 times. Verses of Psalm 80 was chanted, and the thrice holy was the response. So a line would be chanted, and the response was the Trisagion, Holy God, Holy Mighty, Holy Immortal, have mercy on us. Listen to these words from Psalm 80. You may recognize it. O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, and visit this vine and the vineyard which you have planted. When our bishop serves, it's with this verse that he chants and he blesses the faithful when he says, Lord, Lord, look down from heaven and visit this vineyard. At the same time, he will cross the faithful with the trikari, which means a triple candle, the vicari, which means a double candle, three for the thrice holy trinity and two for the two natures of Christ, human and divine. The trisagin is more than just words. Here we see the marriage of the angels who prayed and taught us to fall down in glory. They're saying, holy, holy, holy. They're teaching mankind how we should pray. We see the marriage of those angels as well as the Son of God who taught us to ask for mercy. In the Trisagion, we see the royalty of the King united to the leadership of the Good Shepherd, as described in the Final Judgment. Here we see the witness of the marriage of the Old Testament united with the New, to create one holy unity of all God's people. So if we go back to that vision of Isaiah, we too stand there in the presence of the greatness of God. The Holy Word of God is placed on the altar. The mystical banquet is set into progress. I myself, a priest, I'm a mere creature, but I'm standing in the greatness of the Lord. It's His kingdom. The angels are there, and I'm standing there before the throne. How can I dare to bear standing there, focused, while the angels move around our Lord? How do I keep my hands from trembling? In the same passage, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. With what words can I possibly utter that will help me? This is the same attitude we must have when we enter the Divine Liturgy. This was the mystery that was revealed to the prophet Isaiah. And the answer is, how can we be worthy? Well, we must start through the Holy, Holy, Holy. It's the contemplation of the holiness of God. Then we become aware of ourselves. We have to repent so that we can humbly receive and be sanctified by the hot and live coal of Christ's body and blood. And not only is it a way for us to prepare for the Divine Liturgy, but we can find this prayer everywhere in the life of the Orthodox. It's found in the opening prayers in the morning, in the evening, compline, matins, memorial prayers, which are actually referred to as the Trisagion prayers. It's the prayer that we pray so that we can utter the Lord's Prayer. We say the Trisagion before we travel before we have surgery, when we apply for a job, when we are anxious, when our child can't sleep, when we buy new cattle, when we bless our new yacht, Trisagion first. It's a prayer that reminds us of the holiness of all things. And this is the attitude we must have when we come to the Divine Liturgy. That vision of the prophet Isaiah tells us everything that we need to know about how we should prepare ourselves. Firstly, we must know that we are unworthy. But that doesn't stop us from approaching our Lord and asking for His mercy. Practically speaking, we should arrive on time. 
Occasionally we're held up at home and doing the things we have to do, and that's okay. But this must be an exception. We must not aim for the beginning of liturgy. Where possible, come to matins. Where possible, attend great vespers ahead. Prepare to prepare to prepare, because we are going to join in worship with the angels. When we pray the Trisagion, know that every syllable is important, that God is present, that we must ask for His mercy. Let's teach ourselves the Trisagion if we don't know it already. It should be the first prayer we memorize, something we can teach our children, our nieces, nephews, our godchildren. Let's teach them the Trisagion off by heart. If we can do this, then we can be prepared for everything that happens in this life. Holiness is a term that's used to describe that which is pure, sacred and divine, something that is set apart. This must be the reminder when we pray it, that we are called to be set apart from the rest of creation. That our Lord shines upon us in order for us to shine upon the world. Holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal have mercy on us. Holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal have mercy on us. Holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal have mercy on us. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and to the ages of ages. Amen. Holy Immortal, have mercy on us. Dinamis. Ne dinamis. Holy God, Holy Mighty, Holy Immortal, have mercy on us. Thank you, Father John, for yet another brilliant talk in this series. I look forward to learning a lot more on the Divine Liturgy in the coming weeks. And now a series of readings from our Philokalia. Take your weekly spiritual dose and reflect on the words of our holy Neptic Fathers with this week's Philokalic Nourishment. Those who aim to practice the life of virtue and holiness should not incur condemnation by pretending to be a piety, which they do not possess. But like painters and sculptors, they should manifest their virtue and holiness through their works and should shun all evil pleasures as snares. St. Anthony the Great Think nothing and do nothing without a purpose directed to God, for to journey without direction is wasted effort. St. Mark the Ascetic A man whose destitution deprives him of the power to inflict harm is not therefore to be regarded as holy. But when someone has the power to inflict harm, yet refrains from doing so, out of reverence for God, sparing those who are weaker, he is greatly rewarded after death. Saint Anthony the Great On February 26, in the Holy Orthodox Church, we commemorate our righteous father, Bufordius, Bishop of Gaza, Great Martyr, Fortini, the Samaritan woman, and those with her. On this day, we make remembrance of the exile of the first fashioned, Adam, from the paradise of delight. Let the world mourn bitterly along with ages past, as by sweet eating it hath fallen along with those who had fallen. It is the Sunday of forgiveness, known also as Cheese Fair Sunday. Today's lesson from the Holy Gospel teaches us about forgiveness and fasting, and how both are crucial to our own return to paradise. The Divine Fathers also set the anniversary of the exile of Adam from the paradise of bliss on this day, at the entrance of Great Lent. 
to show us by deed as well as by word how great is the benefit that accrues to man from fasting and repenting, and how, on the contrary, the great harm that comes from destructive gluttony and from disobedience to the divine commandments. The sin of gluttony resulted in Adam and Eve's banishment from paradise because they disobeyed God by eating from the tree which he had forbidden them. The church reminds us of this event to encourage us to return to that ancient glory and primeval happiness by means of fasting and obedience to God and his commandments. By thine ineffable compassion, O Christ our God, make us worthy of the delight of paradise and have mercy on us, as thou art our lone lover of mankind. Amen. What is ancestral sin? Wretch that I am, I disobey your good commandment, O my Lord. And being stripped of your glory, alas, with shame I am laden, and I have The Orthodox Church has the doctrine of ancestral sin rather than original sin. So in today's answer we will focus on what ancestral sin is. It is the consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve which we have inherited. We read in Genesis chapter 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And further along we read, So God made men, in the image of God he made him, male and female he made them. From the beginning of creation, God made us to be in communion with Him, and each and every one of us are made in the image and likeness of God, in perfection. Adam and Eve were given the whole Garden of Eden to eat from, from all the trees that bear fruits except for one tree, 
the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The devil disguised as a serpent attempted with success to convince Eve with falsehood that the tree of knowledge of good, which God commanded them not to eat from, would be the very tree that would open their eyes and they would become gods, knowing good and evil. The Orthodox Church teaches that no one is guilty of the actual sin Adam and Eve committed, but rather everyone inherits the consequences of this act. The foremost of this is the physical death in this world. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they brought death to the world in an instant. They were ashamed of their nakedness and had to hide. In the New Testament, God being the new Adam comes into the world to abolish death by his death on the cross. He willingly took on our sins from the time of Adam and Eve till today, through his love for us, that we may have communion with him through our turning back to him in repentance through confession. To further help us understand ancestral sin, it is the doctrine that Adam and Eve's sin is what makes sin and death a reality for us today. However, we are not guilty for their sin and we are not held accountable for this, as Christ came to redeem us through his death by death and through baptism and frequent participation in the mysteries of the church, like confession and communion. Sin is what separates us from Christ and our goal in life is to find our way back to him who redeemed us through his love for us on the cross. We must carry our own cross with love and humble ourselves so that we may come to know and understand the passions and temptations that separate us from him. Saint Nectarius, a saint that is very loved among many of us, said, Man is destined to become like God, in whose image he was fashioned, and to become a partaker of divine goodness and blessedness. But in order to become like God, good and blessed, and in order to commune with him, he must first of all know himself. Our parents Adam and Eve fell into sin and lost that communion with God, being made in the image and likeness of God. They used him as an example of what they needed to work towards to attain that communion once more. So we, inheriting the consequence of sin, need to clean our souls, to focus on God so that when we are called to eternal life, we may be prepared to enter the heavenly kingdom. We must also always remember that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The following segment is a reading from the lives of the saints, or Synexarian. We hope these Synexarians will encourage you to put on the likeness of Christ. Ecumenical Fathers, St. Gregory of Nyssa Who is St. Gregory of Nyssa? St. Gregory was born in Caesarea in Cappadocia, around the year 331. He was the fourth son of St. Basil the Elder and of St. Emilia. He was also the younger brother of St. Macrina and St. Basil the Great. He was raised in virtue and piety and received his secular education from his father, who was a master of rhetoric. St. Gregory was baptized in his youth and ordained redo in the church, as he was prepped for a life of service to the church. He, however, was overcome by the secular life and became a professor of rhetoric, eventually marrying the young and devout Theosivia. His family and friends later persuaded him to invest in his spiritual life, 
and he often spent time with St. Gregory the Theologian and St. Basil at the River Iris, from where he was able to experience the joys of silence, freedom from earthly cares, inner prayer, and meditation on the mysteries of the Holy Church. In the year 370, St. Basil became Archbishop of Caesarea and found himself in need of reliable friends to resist Emperor Valens, a supporter of the Arian heresy. St. Gregory was reluctantly appointed to the bishopric of the town of Nyssa and soon fell victim to the machinations of the Arians due to his ineptitude for administration or ecclesiastical niceties. Though quite humble, he failed to contend with the devious. The enemies of the holy dogma accused him of being incorrectly ordained and stealing church funds. They assembled a council in his absence and applied to the prefect and open enemy of the Orthodox Church, Demosthetes, for his deposition and exile in the year 376. Silent and unresisting, the holy bishop allowed himself to be removed. Two years later, in the year 378, Emperor Valens died, and the town of Nisa triumphantly welcomed back their bishop from his exile. After almost a decade of turmoil in the church, St. Gregory was able to devote himself entirely to spiritual life in the year 386. One Saint Theosevia, who had long since become his sister in Christ and a spiritual companion, had reposed in the Lord. Saint Gregory devoted himself to the direction of the monasteries founded by Saint Basil and to the fulfillment of the monastic enterprise of which his brother was the founder, organizer and legislator. Why is he considered an ecumenical teacher? In the history of the Orthodox Church, we speak of seven ecumenical councils. The word ecumenical means of relating to or representing the whole body of churches. Therefore, the seven ecumenical councils were required to settle matters related to the Orthodox faith, most notably heresies that sought to destroy it. The bishops, priests and deacons who played a part in the ecumenical councils are considered ecumenical teachers, as the teachings which arose from the councils form part of the basis of our Orthodox beliefs in the present day. St. Gregory of Nyssa took part in the Second Ecumenical Council and trampled down the reasonings of the Arian and Macedonian heretics and achieved the triumph of the Orthodox doctrine regarding the Holy Trinity. Arianism was the belief that God was not Trinity, but rather that God was the Father alone, and Jesus Christ was the first and greatest creation. Macedonianism did, however, believe that Christ was one in essence with the Father but denied that the Holy Spirit was fully divine and a created being. In response to these two heresies, the Second Ecumenical Council declared and added to the Holy Orthodox Creed, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Were Saint Gregory of Nyssa and Saint Gregory the Theologian the same person? St. Gregory of Nyssa and St. Gregory the Theologian were not the same people, although they lived in the same era and were friends. St. Gregory the Theologian was one of the major influences who swayed St. Gregory of Nyssa from his secular life and helped him embrace a spiritual life. The other key influence was St. Gregory's sister, St. Macrina, who persuaded her remaining brothers and sisters to embrace the monastic life, including St. Basil the Great. What else is St. Gregory of Nyssa known for? St. Gregory of Nyssa is known for the composition of a treatise on virginity and Christian perfection. 
Saint Gregory's praise of virginity was inspired by the lament of his past, having allowed himself to fall into the nets of common life and thus separated from the glory of that angelic way of life. Saint Gregory always viewed his elder brother as a father in Christ rather than a brother, according to the flesh. When Saint Basil reposed in the Lord, Saint Gregory, the meek and reserved philosopher, now became the heir and successor of the great hierarch and champion of orthodoxy. Saint Gregory's engagement in the dogmatic struggle was vigorous, and his deep theological insight and powerful eloquence soon made his authority known among everyone. He took part in the Council of Antioch, which was initiated to end the schism that had afflicted the Church for half a century and succeeded in acquitting Saint Meletios, a defender of the Orthodox faith. The saint reorganized the church in Pontus and Armenia and had his brother Peter elected as Bishop of Sebast. He also prepared a series of polemical works against the extreme Arians. In these works, the saint defended the incomprehensibility of the divine nature and showed that Christ has really and truly assumed the whole man, soul and body. The Holy Fathers of the Second Ecumenical Council saw Saint Gregory as a pillar of orthodoxy and a worthy successor of Saint Athanasius and Saint Basil. He subsequently took part in every council and assembly of the Church and was sent on a mission to settle the unrest in the churches of Palestine and Arabia. He later became the spiritual counselor to Emperor Theodosius and delivered the funeral orations of the Emperor's wife and child. The depth and beauty of St. Gregory's treatises increased with his years. He delivered bold and imposing statements of orthodox spiritual teaching and mystical theology. According to St. Gregory's seventh homily on the Song of Songs, man has been created as the image of God, as a reflection of his perfections and especially of his sovereign freedom. He reposed around the year 394 and is remembered by the Church each year on the 10th of January. Apolitikion. In truth you were revealed to your flock as a rule of faith, an image of humility and a teacher of abstinence. Your humility exalted you, your poverty enriched you. Hierarch Father Gregory, entreat Christ our God that our souls may be saved. Thank you for tuning in to another installment of The Divine Lantern. For all the latest news and updates about our Archdiocese, please visit our website at antiochian.org.au. Make sure you join us next week for the continuation of the Divine Liturgy series, where we'll learn about the significance of the Epistle and Gospel said within the Liturgy. Have a blessed day, and I hope to catch you next week.